0: Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. We first caught a glimpse of Gabrielle Union some 20 years ago. In the beloved 90s coming-of-age cult classics she's all that and ten things i hate about you then came an unforgettable turn as a fierce and spirited cheer captain in the turn of the millennium mega hit bring it on a role she admits she rewrote with the director to better depict a young black woman in those days she dominated in milestone supporting roles but not anymore today a union's purview in hollywood and in life is a heck of a lot bigger in fact, her lead as the modern-day girl boss in the four-season hit Being Mary Jane helped us to see a whole new kind of driven, complex woman who's constantly begging the question, can women really have it all? In a time when strong Black women are overhauling TV, thank you Carrie Washington, Shonda Rhimes, Issa Rae, Taraji P. Henson, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Viola Davis, Gabrielle continues to be a key disruptor on screen and in real life. Last year after the director of Birth of a Nation became embroiled in a rape scandal, Gabrielle penned an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times, revealing her own personal experience with sexual violence at 19. She was an activist before that, but the article thrust her even more into the spotlight, helping her to shed light on racism, sexism, standards of beauty, and a host of other issues that continue to hold women back. And while some celebrities shy away from soul-bearing social media, this particular superstar opts for realness over rhetoric. Whether it's speaking openly about her struggles with fertility, her entrepreneurial endeavors, or her often hilarious Twitter exchanges with NBA star husband, Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle makes us feel more like close friends than fans. And that spirit is exactly what's at the heart of her sparkling new memoir, We're Going to Need More Wine, which is filled with frank, funny, deeply personal essays detailing her journey to right here, right now. A moment when Gabrielle Union continues to write the script to her own life, her way. Hi, Gabrielle. Hi. I'm so excited to have you as a guest on Unstyled today. Thanks. Your memoir. We're gonna need more wine. I can't believe that that title has not been taken. I I got lucky. I know. I got very lucky. Let's start talking about like this switch from Nebraska. To California. There's a lot in the book about Val Vista, which was working middle class with upper middle class goals, and talked about this sort of idea of you knew everything you needed to know about somebody's economic status by like where their house was. And I totally related to that, you know, kind of growing up in a wealthy South Shore Long Island town, but being in the shittiest part of that town and knowing that everybody knew that, you know, we were probably the poorest family, you know, at that school district. Tell me about how that kind
1: of experience shaped you. When you're young, you don't really have a concept of, you know, how much your parents make. Are they living beyond their means? Are they living well below their means? You just don't really know. And it kind of manifests itself into how much stuff you get. Um, and is your stuff the top of the line stuff? Is it the right stuff? Is it the right stuff? Is it the stuff that your friends have? <laughs> yeah. And then you start to notice, okay, they've got Welch's grape juice. And if anything, we might have grape juice drink. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. And then it's kind of mortifying. And you're constantly trying to prove that you're better than your subdivision. It's sort of being good in spite of, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, you're pretty for a black girl. You're, you're so accomplished given that you're, the circumstances. You know, you're from Val Vista, that you live in Val Vista, but to the rest of my family, it was aspirational living, like you guys made it. So it was always sort of between those two worlds of we have the by far the most of, you know, everyone in my family and feeling like we had the least of everyone in the community and we're black. And it's just one more thing that that makes you other and makes you feel less than and makes you feel surveilled.
0: Do you think that that informed your own desire to make a good living and to really be ambitious?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of that is you know my parents' advice of you're going to have to be bigger, badder, better, stronger, faster. You're going to have to work you know five times as hard just to be considered equal. All of that, and feeling like okay, I don't ever want to have the worst house on the best block. And then you know when I started getting my own money, I did not want to live beyond my means. But I also didn't want to have crappy stuff, which kind of kept me in a state of living well below my means, but randomly splurging on certain things that would give me the appearance of success. So it wasn't like grape juice. (laughs) I mean, what an extravagance. Yeah, grape juice. Why do you think that you struggled with self esteem? I I think being uh, black in predominantly white spaces. Constantly being told that you're in but you're out like the party was happening in a glass house And I'm on the outside so you you can see it you're dancing you can hear the music But it never really felt like I was on the inside always feeling somehow less than even when I had parties never that good (laughs) Those parties look damn fun, but it just never felt like I was fully in you know and then as i again as i got older and parents you know my friends parents started feeling more comfortable speaking uneditedly around us and you hear the racist jokes you hear the homophobic jokes and you you hear the jokes about you know class and you realize those jokes apply to you and you start to shrink and shrink and shrink
0: your parents had a very complicated relationship.
1: <laughs> that's, that's one way of putting it. Well, you can put I mean, how would you put it? Uh, d- terribly dysfunctional, um, uneven, terribly matched. Watching my mom have to, you know, at certain points be indebted, you know, to m- the whims of my dad. Like, that was never going to be me, and I decided that at a very young age.
0: I pulled this out because um, it made me cry when I, when I read it in your book the breaking point between your parents was when he said something mean to you and your and your and your sisters and um he left a note for for your mother and misspelled her name knowing how dedicated your mother was to your family it really broke my heart tell me about how that was like a big turning point for them and for her
1: really i had to relook at it through a like a different scope when i when i got divorced when my standards and my expectations were so low you know that my mom suddenly made sense. And I remembered it all just from a very different perspective. Because as a teenager, I just thought, you look so stupid. Why don't you leave? It seems easy to leave. It It seems seems so so easy. easy. I literally grew up looking at my mom thinking she was so dumb. And my mom's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. Worldly, friendly, compassionate. She's a saint. But when I was young, (laughs) when I was young, I just I didn't see it. All I saw was weakness and I hated weakness. It, It still feels uncomfortable to this day. Like you just don't you have no idea, of course, as a kid, like how finances are tied into and and judgment and 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 culture. And, you know, the fact that my grandma was like, you have a husband that brings home a paycheck. You have a house that has a pool a slide and a diving... What else do you want, bitch? Like, you've got... You are living the dream. Uh, so what if he's got, like, a girlfriend or, you know, a whole other life? Doesn't, doesn't, you know, include you. He brings home the check. And it was, you know, my dad wasn't sly about it. He wasn't... He, as he... You know, we just had this conversation. He's like, I didn't hide it. We're like, yeah, no, you didn't. He probably didn't think there was anything that, that was that wrong with it. In his generation, it's like, but I brought home the check. And I like, did my part. I did my part. Like what, what? I took you to Black Angus for our anniversary. Well, what more do you Steak. want, lady? Look, <laughs> like, you know, like I show up to the games. I'm at the school when I need to be. Like what? <sighs> compatibility. Like what? I mean, come on. No, let's. You're you're asking for too much.
0: Tell me when you decided to write the book, and was
1: it fun? It seemed like it was fun to write. I wouldn't say fun. Healing in different ways. Okay. Um. Some of it very satisfying. Some of it. A relief, like, like a, literally an orangutan had hopped off my back, just writing it down. But a lot of it, I just never thought I would ever share with the public, much less I didn't even want to share it with my therapist, somebody I pay to not judge me. It was a challenging process at times. Some of the funner chapters, you know, the more funny chapters are written just I needed comic relief between some of the deeper, heavier, heavier stuff like the the Dan and Yogurt story. Do you want to tell that really quickly? Sure. There's an essay in the book about some of the downsides of fame, like buying tampons. And once someone recognizes you, they will follow you through the store. They want to know what's in your basket. And it's like the idea, like when you, I know I need, you know, super plus tampons and some always with wings because I do have a heavy flow. And then you see the, you know, the reaction of the person in the aisle, like, She's a bleeder. Look at her. <laughs> she's a bleeder. Oh, she has to get the wings. Oh, the, the overnights. Oh, she's really a bleeder. It's just such weird personal information that you end up having to share because people you're so surveilled. So I ended up in a situation where I had a yeast infection and I was in Miami with a different boyfriend and I didn't wanna go to CVS to buy Monistat. I was literally afraid to treat a medical condition that is easily treatable over the counter because I did not want to be known as having anything wrong with my vagina. So I called my girlfriend who always has an answer for everything and she was like, go get yogurt and then you're gonna just put the yogurt up your vagina. I trusted her. Yeah. She always had an answer for everything. She was the one who like the first person in our group who talked about like the neti pot. So, you know, we all trusted her with pretty much like every She's diagnosis. So evolved. She's very evolved. Yes. So I go, I get Dan yogurt, vanilla. Mm-hmm. I get back to the house and I realize the yo- it's not going in. So I can't get the yogurt into my vagina. So I call her back. I'm like, it's not going in. It's just slapped on the outside, which is providing a bit of relief. But I need to get it in there. And she said, OK, go to McDonald's go get a straw one of the big mcdonald's straws then go back to you know his house (laughs) slurp it up slurp up the danny yogurt and then use it as like an applicator to get in there
0: so gross
1: yeah ultimately i was able to to get the mcdonald's straw i was able to get the yogurt in there and i did find some relief just
0: get the fucking monostat, man just like take
1: the risk yeah
0: In the book, you talk about a lot of really challenging life experiences, one that you wrote about in the LA Times, which is about your rape when you were 19. Sexual assault is very much in the news right now with the downfall of Harvey Weinstein. But we know that he's not the only one. He's not the only person, man in a powerful position that's using his success and his stature to basically do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. What have you been thinking about, you know,
1: with this news servicing As a sexual assault survivor, A, I wish they would use the term sexual violence. Half of America dismissed our now president for his sexual violence as frat boy locker room antics. When you grab him by the pussy, that's sexual violence. That is sexual assault. When you grab a woman, you know, who's interviewing by the boob, um, that is sexual violence. When you are using your position of power to sexually exploit someone, that is that is a violent act. So many people have experienced the same thing, the feeling of this is what comes with being a woman in the world. And toughen up, kid. This is what it is. And we're basically telling young women, older women, that sexual violence is, is the same as getting a work physical. It's just a part of the job. And what we're seeing right now is a widespread no the fuck it isn't. No, it isn't. And I'm I am calling everyone to the carpet. The Harvey Weinstein is has left a string of victims for decades, but he is he is not even the tip of the iceberg. And are we going to see this iceberg fully exposed and the Titanic that has that it brought down? Or is this going to melt away like a lot of other scandals? It's it's in the news and then it melts away. And everyone else is like, damn it, you didn't get to my abuser. You didn't get to my boss. You didn't get to my coworker. And then you People retreat back to the shadows, you know, and and what I find so problematic is, you know, when you're looking especially to other women as allies in this fight, when something happens and you you look around and you you lock eyes with a woman and they've seen or heard what just happened and you're waiting for help, you're waiting for the cavalry to arrive and it doesn't and what is our responsibility as witnesses as allies as fellow victims and it's hard because we've all been you know victimized by this act of violence and there is no one way to react what i've also seen though in every every field women who think that if you go to the hotel room women who think if you go into the office and you close the door that you're asking for it and you're one of those kinds of women that's willing to do anything to get ahead and you are not worthy of help. I'm sure you've watched the clip of Donna Karen on the Daily
0: Mail and, you know, afterwards she backpedaled and blamed it on the reporter for taking it out of, out of context. But if you watch the video, it's all very much in context. And I think that what is missing from her, her hideous sort of reaction to everything that happened was that a lot of women that are in those situations where they're asked to go to a hotel room feel like they don't have a choice and they are worried that they're going to be excommunicated from an industry that they've dreamed, you know, for years of being a part of and to prey on people prey on their dreams and their ambitions it's not just it's not just about the sexual violence it's literally destroying them you know destroying
1: everything that they that they've ever wanted in the world it validates the violence it validates the abuse the motivation um, the motivation when I heard NeNe Leaks make that joke to the heckler in the audience, I hope your Uber driver rapes you on the way home. You're not helping. You're not helping. And we need help. We are screaming for help. I mean, I was raped at work by a stranger. And yet a woman asked, "What? well, what did you have on?
0: I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I'm Grateful to you, as I know millions of women are for, for telling your story and also for being such an activist and a supporter on sexual violence. You talk a lot about what an experience it's been helping to raise your stepsons. Tell me about like what that has been like. You know, learning
1: how to how to be you know an important role model in their lives. Incredibly satisfying and gratifying. But you know, I, I grew up with all girls, so like boys were like this mystery. You know what I mean? I only knew my dad as like a grown ass man. I didn't, you know, I didn't have like intimate knowledge of what teenage boys go through or, you know, going from the elementary school into the junior high into the high school arc. I had no idea what that looked like. And here I am trying to guide. and I'm like, "Ah, I'm winging it. You know what I mean? I'm just like, let's just go by basic common sense. Let's just, you know, the same lessons that my mom taught us, I think probably apply. Let me just shoot from the hip. And You'd be surprised that I I teach them the same things that I talk about when I'm mentoring you know girls about what decency looks like, what compassion looks like, what help looks like, what an allyship looks like, while at the same time being very real that I'm raising privileged black boys who are growing up with extreme wealth and their white friends who are able to Act a certain way and to speak to adults in a certain way and tone and how they're being praised as young leaders and assertive. And, and when my children, you know, act privileged, it's aggressive, scary, threatening. And then I'm sort of parenting out of a fear of imminent death. You know, raising kids in Florida, which is an open carry state and a stand your ground state, where we've seen a, a you know a teenage child, you know, murdered, you know, holding some Skittles and a and a iced tea, that is terrifying. You know, recently there was this drive by dunk challenge where the kids, if you know, the, there was a court out in front of someone's house, they would like drive by, get out of the car, and like dunk, you know, at someone's house. And I'm you know following the kids on Snapchat and. And I see that they're doing the challenge. And when I get home, like I- I'm immediately gripped with the panic and terror. I'm like, you're on someone's private property. They can kill you. And it's like it's a prank everybody's doing, you know, dunking on somebody's home court. In our on our street, I'm like, you don't walk on anyone's private property, you walk in the street, you know, you make sure your hands are out of your pockets. You know, I talk about in the book how I had to instruct them how to walk the dog so that all of their fingers are splayed and, and showing so it doesn't look like they're concealing anything. Wow. But at the end of the day, you know, we time and time and time and time again across the country, sometimes private citizens, sometimes it's state sanctioned violence, you know, i.e. police brutality, People are getting away with murdering black people and their, their line of defense was, I feared for my life. When there was when, there, when the person is unarmed, when the person was not lunging for them, the only thing that they feared was blackness. So how do you raise confident, smart, compassionate, empathetic kids when they can be murdered for existing? And that is what I struggle with daily. You know, how much is I'm being overprotective? How much is, is is it I'm not doing enough? Do they get it? Do they think that you're being like overbearing? I don't think they got it until when my husband moved to the Bulls and we put them in school in Chicago. They got it. In Chicago, it was very clear because the segregation in our neighborhood was very, very It's more distinct. And people didn't know them like they knew them in Miami. So if they weren't physically standing next to my husband, they were just teenagers in the Gold Coast, black bodies in white spaces, and they can easily see the reaction. They could see the reaction that Zion, who, you know, was nine at the time, and, oh, he's such a cute little boy, and they saw as Zion sh- shot up throughout the school year. It's it went from, he's so cute, to clutch the purse, Yeah, and then by the time they're walking to McDonald's, the fear in the neighbor's eyes, the crossing of the streets of our neighbors. They could see it. It hit them in the face. Yeah. And all the things that I'd been saying in Miami, it was happening in Chicago. And now that they're back in school in Miami, the 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 overriding thing that keeps being said by their teachers, by their coaches, they have matured in a way that I've never seen kids in such a short amount of time mature. And their level of compassion, their level of taking time to like educate their classmates, their tolerance for racism, sexism, homophobia is zero. And it's like, because you know, you're talking, you're preaching, you, you don't know if they're listening, that if they're gonna apply it, you know, they're saying all the right things. You don't know if you've got an Eddie Haskell on your hands and then they go to school and they're like, you know, nuts. But hearing from their teachers, hearing from their coaches, that what we're actually teaching in our home, when we talk about affirmative consent
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what that actually looks like. And know you may not see it in the movies or on TV, but this is what it's supposed to look like. You don't do anything. Each step, you need a, a verbal yes or no. And that is going to shape the boundary with the the people that you're dating. And, and, and if it's a, a girl worth having, she's going to appreciate you, know, you taking the time to make sure that she feels safe every step of the way. And just know that just because you're not necessarily seeing that on TV, you know, or in movies or whatever, doesn't mean what I'm saying is wrong. This is the safest thing for you and for her. And there's nothing more romantic than both people being super comfortable every step of the way. And that experience is something you're both going to remember for the rest of your life. And just know that you're always going to be on the right side of history if you if you listen to to the to the girls and young women that you are, you know, interested in, if you follow their lead and if you ask every step of the way what they're actually comfortable with, that is the way to go. Communication. You sound like a great mama. I'm winging it, but I'm I'm hoping I'm saying all the right things and just common sense reasonable. I think that's all you
0: can do is this, you know, that's be you be an observant person in the world and really try to translate that the part in your book about the fact that you never really thought you wanted to have children until you met your, your current husband mm-hmm. and that you, you actually lost count of the number of miscarriages you'd had and I can totally relate to that and I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. It sucks. How do you feel having gone through that and just learning
1: about the process and has it brought you and your husband closer? By the time we went into it, we had watched so many of our friends go through it and only half survived as, you know, married people are committed, you know, it in a puts you to religion. the yeah.
0: test, it really does. Yeah.
1: And so we saw what went wrong and we saw the in the couples, you know, that were still together, what went right. And so and luckily we have a group that is just painfully honest and they they want people to make it, you know, yeah. thank God. And so they could we kind of went into it knowing where it could go south. And so when my hormones, because I've been injecting them into my body, you know, have me <laughs> it's laugh So much crying. fun, isn't it? Yeah, laugh crying, you know. The bruises, it's just great. Uh, and all of the misconceptions about what causes fertility issues. You know, the second that the, the People magazine excerpt came out, and I'm looking at the comments, which I generally don't, but I was curious. And the first comment I read, you know, because they're talking about why I might be infertile, the, this guy says... Because of all those dicks. And I was like, all oh, those dicks? I'm like, first of all, how do you know how many dicks I've had? And second of all, what is the threshold of like, how, how <laughs> is it like six dicks? Is it 28 dicks? Is it 45? Is there th- a medical report that yes. we don't know about? Like, like that where it says like, the, this many dicks leads to infertility. And I was like, if it was so many dicks, then you wouldn't be here because your mama had a lot of dicks. Like, you know, <laughs> f- motherfucker, that's, what, that's what I wanted to say. Of course, I didn't want to end up on the shade room in the comment section called comment creep. And. But then, you know, the next one was like, well, the bitch is almost 50. And then somebody was like, Well, I heard she didn't want to get um fat um by having, you know. And it's just like you read all of it. Well, she put her, she prioritized her, her career, and that's what happens. And I realized in the room, in the waiting room, at every and I've been to IVF clinics across the country, there is a range in age from 20s to late 40s. So the idea that this is a An older career woman's penance, you know, is false. You know, infertility can affect anyone for all sorts of reasons. But there's so much shame and mystery and guilt and feelings of, like, you're in this secret society of defective women. It's like everyone's on the scale, on the spectrum of
0: fertility. And it fluctuates for a lot of reasons through age, through hormones, through diet, through environmental, you know, genetics, everything. And it's such a mystery in so many ways. And I think there's – you become so obsessed with all of the information, all mm-hmm. the data, all the chat rooms. It can be consuming. But I really hope that, you know, you and your family really end up getting what you want.
1: Well, I always say it's like I have an A life. Like I had a pretty awesome life. If we add another human being, that's just an A+. plus. But my life is just like I I feel good and I feel happy. This is a – This was a trying emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially trying few years. And that first miscarriage was catastrophic and just earth shattering because we told people and we were so excited. The first one's always a killer. And but then, you know, once I realized I had adenomyosis, which had been misdiagnosed for the first few years that my body was like, yeah, no, we're totally getting pregnant. But the adenomyosis was literally like smothering the embryo as as it was trying to grow, which is why I had so many very early miscarriages. miscarriages. But just even having an answer like, oh, adenomyosis. Okay, this explains my nine-day periods. This explains the low ovarian function. This explains so much, but just without A proper diagnosis, you start blaming yourself, you do start looking into your past. And someone I had spoke to to someone who was like, I think it's the psychological trauma of the rape, which really kind of screwed me up that I was like, I mean, obviously, you know, being raped, it's like, it's like that person died on that, you know, floor at Payless. And the person that emerged, I always thought was, you know, a better version. But now i'm this there's a suggestion that that better version is forever damaged and 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 the rapist is the reason why i'll never like how much more does this motherfucker want to take from my life but this i you know or d- depression can can lead to endometriosis and it's like oh my oh my god how much healing do i have to has to take place or when people just say oh just take off a year um uh, the way my prenup is set up, which is also in the book, um, I don't have that option, nor do most women who are paying for this um, have that option to just, you know, rest for a year.
0: What? Or the people who actually tell me, you know, or have told me, you know, you should eat more Brazil nuts. Oh, my you goodness. eat more Brazil nuts and some dried pineapples really good, too. That's the secret. And I'm just like, fuck
1: you. <laughs> Somebody fuck told you me. Fuck you and your dried pineapple. I should take <laughs> Geritol. Um, um, do you know how much Geritol I was taking at one point? Um, what is that for? I just know it's like a sort I of it was d- like, an, a, like a drug for older old people. people. Mm-hmm. Apparently, some old wives' tale. But I was taking it religiously. Maybe
0: I should take it too.
1: You know, well, there's no child, so no. I, I can't. You know, um, yet, yet, yet. It's, it's She's coming. He's coming. He's there. I can feel them floating around. It's all about timing. In the energy. Yeah. It's
0: all about timing. Being Mary Jane is—it's going to be
1: concluding, yeah. which is you know bittersweet. What do you think that you learned from from playing Mary Jane? I learned to have a lot more patience and compassion for imperfect people. I, <laughs> I learned to recognize, Amen, you know, <laughs> that I am you know painfully imperfect myself. And because so many people thought I was writing Mary Jane based on my own life, they gave me a lot of more compassion that I had before the character. And I try to just pay that forward to other people that I may have cut off or judged harshly or didn't allow for personal evolution and and just a different idea of what happy someone's version of happily ever after can look like so as we're as we're throwing out ideas for this 2 hour finale about what is Mary Jane's happily ever after and what does that look like we're having some epic battles like we all have an idea about how Mary Jane should ride off into the sunset. I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, I hope it doesn't end up like the Sopranos finale where people are like, what the hell? Journey? The <laughs> a little Journey
0: song? Like, t- Well, there's take always taking time for out? Journey.
1: Maybe, you know, Night Ranger. I'm not sure. Sister Christian, all the time has come. Dum-dum. And you know that you're the only one to say,
0: okay.
1: Should we conclude there? I think yeah. I think that that's was good. amazing. Think good. Yay! <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. No one ever knows my '80s random. A little karaoke
0: hats. on style. Thank you, Gabrielle. You're welcome. And congratulations on. We're going to need more wine. It's incredible. Everyone, go out and get it. And I appreciate you guys for the support. You. We love you. Thank you. I hope you're inspired after hearing Gabrielle's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Tommy Fitzpatrick. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Alexa Chung on the life of the ultimate fashion outsider insider. And stay tuned for a special bonus episode with Refinery29's very own Chief Content Officer, Amy Emmerich, and the host and creator of Refinery29's Strong Opinions loosely held podcast, Elisa Kreisinger, also known as Pop Culture Pirate. We'll be talking about broadcasting the revolution for women to see, feel, and claim their power.